In New Jersey, we found some key Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Perino. And I'm Casey McLean. This week, we're also joined by Colin Millay. Hey, everybody. What's going on? So today we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to give you a coronavirus update. Then we'll talk about uh, Rutgers, is how they developed a coronavirus saliva test. Then we'll take you to Murphy's Corner. Where we'll give you some updates on what he's been up to, some feuds he's had, things like that. And then we'll talk about our favorite coronavirus conspiracy theories. And we'll end the opening with, you know, what, what life is like in quarantine. What are we doing? After the headlines, we'll talk more with Colin about uh, what campaigns look like under coronavirus and, well, really whatever else we get to. I think it's going to be a good week. Yeah. So let's get right into it. Get right into it. So um, I actually don't have updated figures. Uh, Maybe these are the most updated ones from April 16th. Uh, We're recording this on April 18th. But uh, there's 75,317 cases in New Jersey currently. And, uh, well, that's a lot. That's (laughs) not nothing. Yeah, it's not nothing. The current deaths in New Jersey are up to 3,800, almost 4,000. And uh, I, I heard the governor say on, on TV recently that he thinks April's going to be uh, a very tough month in these upcoming weeks. So we're probably going to get a lot more cases and stuff like that. But as we'll talk about later, uh, the lockdown stuff is working. So uh, that's good. That's good news. It's not bad. Actually, I have an update on that. If you Google it and you look at the statistics, Currently in New Jersey, it's 78,467 confirmed with 802 recovered and 3,840 deaths. Currently, the highest county on the list is Bergen County with 10,426 confirmed. And there's also, did you guys see the, the Trump, I think it was yesterday, the Trump press conference, the White House briefing? I couldn't bring myself to watch it. What happened there? Well, they were rolling out. I'm not sure it was Thursday or Friday, but they were rolling out the basically phases of when states can, because now he's giving it up to the state, saying that everyone can decide, all the governors can decide for themselves. And just as a note, uh, Trump (laughs) doesn't have the power to tell governors when to open their states up. So it's not. Yeah, that's very explicitly stated in the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. But you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, teach their own. But he was saying that there are three phases, and the first phase basically is what we're at right now, and that is schools are closed. There's no gatherings. It's strict quarantine life. And then the next phase is when you start seeing a decline in the numbers and you could open some things up. So schools that they have not already been closed can reopen. And if you have, if you're an employer, if you have established guidelines for, you know, people testing and you're separating people, you can open your offices up again and so on and so forth. And then, um, I think phase three is when you have even more of a decline and no numbers are spiking and you're supposed to evaluate what is open, what is closed, what restrictions are on the the state, depending on your numbers for the coronavirus. And they kept on talking about at what point can stadiums open up and have that. And uh, a lot of people are concerned with that. And I think it's because Americans... If you're not into trash TV and you're not into Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime watching all that kind of stuff, you watch sports and we're not having like my aunt has complained about that. She's like, I can't watch my Yankees. Like I can't watch the the trainings. I can't 
like what am I supposed to do? And you did, meanwhile, you did, you did tell your aunt there's a pandemic going on, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure if she would think it's a conspiracy of uh, the left, but you know, I come from a Republican background, and though I am not Republican, I have said before I'm independent, but these kind of situations i'm like you guys are really republican aren't you <laughs> like you really i'm worried um but my concern obviously is of people and you know surviving this not can i see spring training but basically that was a major concern and people are saying that it's probably going to be for tv only kind of thing where people can play baseball or might be able to i know golf is probably going to be one of the first sports to reopen and it might be really great for ratings you know because no one else there's nothing else to watch for people who like sports um so if golf is the first one to open up because it is like we said, inherently a social distancing sport. Yeah, check out last week's episode where we talked yep. about golf. So um, he, it's just interesting to see that now some states are going to open up and it's just very dependent. And for New Jersey in particular, we have we have a lot of commuters and it's very, very dangerous to start talking about things opening up and having people travel to games or different events and come back to our state. Or have people come here after going there, and then you know it's just it's a mess. Yeah, I don't. I don't go ahead, Colin. Yeah, no, I think one thing to keep in mind. Um, I was watching uh, Governor Cuomo give his um, addresses, sort of daily address to the state yesterday, and the thing that he talked about is that now we're sort of entering where one person is currently infecting 0.9 people, and that we were at about one person infecting 0.4 people, which is sort of the metric being if one person is if infecting more than one person, that's where you get pandemic levels of you know virus spread because that just exponentially increases instead of decreases. And the problem is, is that like we've done this through our social distancing. So like as we begin to open, unless we have, you know, and we'll get to this in other articles in terms of really good testing, we're not going to know who we can allow to go out because we just don't know if someone has, you know, tested positive previously and is now the virus is dormant or they have not been exposed, you know, you know, all of these factors that we just don't have. So we're sort of at this like precipice where what we're doing is obviously working. You know, it, it, the numbers don't lie in that regard, but we don't have the information to make a informed decision on the timeline. And so that's really what the worrying thing is, is we're imposing extraneous timelines without the data to back it up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I mean, let's, let's be real. The, these opening up stadiums and stuff is uh, just like not a good idea when you have don't have the information. And we're also, we have enough information to know we still have a pandemic going on. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, that would just don't get me wrong. I want to see the Mets lose as much as the next person. But like, <laughs> look, you know, I think... Right now, we're tied with the Yanks. So really, I think we're this is a net benefit. Just yeah. Really. And also on that same note, there's already talk about for baseball, the MLB, they're talking about basically sequestering. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> sequestering uh, the sports teams, the baseball teams into the spring training grounds 
but it's an interesting thing to see people who are super wealthy, who are able to own sports teams, then say that because we're paying you, we now own you and you have to go and isolate yourself and be secluded from your entire family because we have a game and we want to see the, the next season happen. And there's some of the highest paid professional baseball players are, um, there's this one guy, I forgot his name, but he has his wife and she's pregnant and she's due. And he, if he were to go to this uh, this secluded site to train, he wouldn't see the birth of his kid. He wouldn't be able to interact with his kid for a long time. Yeah. He'd probably miss his, his kids for six months at that point because you can't go back and forth, especially with a newborn. Yeah, so. yeah that's a good point. I got some good news. Before we move on to the next topic. So Rutgers University d- developed a coronavirus saliva test. Go and are you? I'm gonna, yeah, that's, uh, that's where we all graduated from. And uh, I'll just read a little bit from the announcement on April 13th from the Rutgers today. They said uh, the Food and Drug Administration has granted emergency use authorization to Rutgers RUCDR Infinite Biologics and its collaborators for a new collection approach that utilizes saliva as the primary test biomaterial for SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, the first such approval granted by the federal agency. The new saliva collection method, which RUCDR developed in partnership with Spectrum Solutions and Accurate Diagnostics Labs, will allow for a broader population screening than the current method of nose and throat swabs. Basically, the chief operating officer and director of that uh, project said this impact of this approval is significant. It means we no longer have to put healthcare professionals at risk for infection by performing, oh, I don't know how to pronounce those words, but it means the nose and uh, <laughs> the nose and throat collections, nasopharyngeal uh, and uh, pharyngeal. pharyngeal. There yeah. you go. Wow. Yeah, I watched yeah. a lot of CSI growing up, so that's you know, I got that, uh, that vocab on lock. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, good. Have, I think I, this is really great. Have you guys seen the test that is currently, like, the lumbotomy that they're doing on people? You mean where they shove, like, the, the it looks like a Q-tip, like, far up your nose? Yeah, so, it's like the yeah. ancient Egyptian method of taking the brain out through the nose. Ugh. There's that, and then the one where they swab the back of your throat, and they basically just make you gag. Yeah. Off. Yeah, that's all of that. So oh. this is good. I, I bet you bet you one of the people got one of those tests for like, this is so unpleasant. We got to create a saliva test. And also it's they the one test, and that's the thing that I think a lot of people aren't understanding, is if you test negative, you can still test positive. Like, it's not just barring you from saying you don't have it. It could say, number one, that you might have it, but it's not active enough in your system to show yeah. positive. It's like a pregnancy test. Like there's certain antibodies and different kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, cells that take a long time to produce. So you could be in that line tomorrow, test negative, go about your business, be asymptomatic, spread, become a super spreader, and then test positive three days later. And then you need to have another test to make sure that it's out of your system. And you can't do that unless you're wealthy, um, apparently, and yeah. connected. Yeah. So, and there's also just another thing to remember is that uh, a test can also result in both false positives and false negatives. This is like any test that we develop will have some margin of error. Um, and I don't know what the current one is for our test kits and things like that. But so that's always like taken into account. Like if you get tested negative, but you start developing symptoms or whatever, you could still have it. Just because you tested yeah. negative previously doesn't mean that you didn't have it. It could have been, like you said, either, either uh, uh, it wasn't present enough in your system to be detected or you know, the test was just faulty because sometimes that happens. But 
Yeah. And then there's also the amount of time that it takes to process right now. I think the, the nasal, what is the term, Colin? <laughs> pharyngeal. Nasopharyngeal. <laughs> the word of the day is pharyngeal. pharyngeal. Yeah. Um, but it's, it takes time to process those results. And, and I think it's like some people are saying it takes a week for them to get their results back. That's yeah, shocking. So that is there um, an update on what the Rutgers saliva test will take to produce a result? Yeah, they, uh, they say that the saliva specimens can be stored or transported at uh, ambient temperatures and tested within 48 hours of collection. And uh, 24 to 48 hours later, you you can get your test results. So this is a lot quicker than the current test. So not only is it like safer for healthcare professionals because they won't have to be put at risk to actually collect samples for the test, but um, it's also just a quicker test. So does that's... the does the saliva test also test for your income and your famous family <laughs> connections? Uh, that might that might increase the the time that it takes to produce the results. That's a good yeah, question. That's, that's question. probably somewhere in the research <laughs> that it does have a direct effect on how quickly you get your test results back. Have you been in a famous movie? Uh, you get test results. Yes, no. Yeah. Is, are, is your brother uh, famous? <laughs> yes, no. Okay, great. Oh boy. So no, that's it's it's really good to hear that it's a, that that fast a turnaround time. That's huge if they can implement it. It's it's like anything else though. It's you know this is all well and good, but implementation and scaling is the hard part, right? You know, it's yeah. like maybe forty eight hours in a small test group, but maybe that goes up when you test, well, I don't know, the residents of the state of New Jersey, right? That's a lot of people. Yeah. So, also the production of these kids. Yeah. So like, yeah, that, that's the other thing is how quick can we get these produced? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's still good. I really like that this was, uh, developed and I'm, you know, kind of proud that it was from the school I went oh, to. Rutgers, yeah. Everyone forgets, man, Rutgers is a world-renowned research institution. We yeah. suck at football and, you know, sometimes Xbox sucks, but we do have really good research institutions. So, you yes, know. yeah, at the very least, you know, as a, an institution for learning, at least that is what is good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, right. So <laughs> moving on to, to Murphy's, Murphy's Corner. Corner. Yeah. You want to start with the executive orders and then we'll go. I into do. Some and I want to call out NJ.com. I talked to you off the pod about this, but there was some gotcha journalism going on. Where... NJ.com? Really? Yeah. I would never. I would never. <laughs> I would have known. But the, the headline was basically Murphy has passed 27 executive orders to fight COVID. And it, Leads, it led me to believe that, wow, he must have produced it just now, like 27. Wow, that's insane. And then they, if you clicked on the article and you went into it, it was like 27 executive orders, which we've been covering since the jump, and 27 executive orders over the course of weeks. Like, And it's very upsetting that they're doing the, the clickbait journalism and making people think that Murphy is this you know, dictator over New Jersey. And then also I wanted to call up before we go into his executive orders that today there was a press conference with Cuomo and he announced that he is, I think it's again with the inmates, we talked about it last episode, really plugging last week's episode, but the, the inmates of certain, I don't know, I don't know, certain buckets of the the population um, of incarcerated inmates, they are releasing them depending on if it's a nonviolent crime, depending on their age, depending on all these different, you know, circumstances. And this is something that Murphy did last week and got basically zero coverage and everyone's hailing Cuomo for his, his, his executive orders and his behavior. But New Jersey governor Murphy is crushing it and doing it almost 
under the radar. Like there's not enough attention on what he is doing to help New Jersey residents. And it's at a time where New Jersey is one of the, the top leading positive COVID cases. Like it's, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I'm biased for New Jersey. Obviously we started this podcast to, to focus on New Jersey, but it's, it's interesting I, to see. The I have anti Cuomo versus- though. Cause just the amount of tension he gets for doing things that like New Jersey has done for like a week or, or weeks prior. It just, it just infuriates me. Welcome yeah. to every story about New Jersey that New York gets first. I mean, it's a tale as old as time, really. Seriously. Um, and the president is directly calling out Cuomo and is not really paying attention to Murphy as is usual. Everyone pays attention Honestly, to New that York. Part's, that's pro- that part's probably good. Well, yeah. unfortunately not, because they're going to all like that governor, uh, what we spoke about before the um, working together of the, the, the governor's association, right, is currently led by a Republican, but it is vice chaired by Cuomo. Right. Oh. So the National Governors Association is getting a lot of heat from the president because they were publicly requested five hundred billion dollars because and I might be jumping ahead a little bit. But I think this is kind of pertinent when we're talking about Murphy and his response is that what we're doing right now on the state level. And let's I guess I can kind of keep it specifically to Jersey is we are spending a ton of money to execute actions to slow the spread, right? Whether that's research, whether that's, you know, uh, commandeering resources, you know, public uh, publicizing private healthcare institutions, like getting private healthcare companies on board with our public health system, which is time consuming and a lot of money. Um, the problem is, is there has been zero dollars allocated to the states as of now, as of today, as of April I don't even know what day it is 18, today. 18. It's 18th. So as of April 18th, uh, from my knowledge, there's no money allocated to the states, but there's been bailouts to business and the American taxpayer. But the you know wing of the government, the state governments that are supposed to execute these plans of reopening and all of these very complicated tasks have not been given funding. And so that's where sort of the pushback is coming. It's Trump is saying, oh, you need to execute all of this and there's no money to fund it. Execute it. it. So that's sort of where this like balance is, is that Murphy's doing everything he can and a lot of governors are, but to at a certain point without the funding, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. So going into his executive orders since then, so go Murphy. So right after we recorded last week, so on April 11th, he passed executive order 125. So it's signing executive order to implement additional mitigation requirements on New Jersey transit, private carriers, and restaurants to limit the spread of COVID-19. Then on the 13th of this month, he passed Executive Order 126, signing um, Executive Order prohibiting cable and telecommunications providers from terminating internet and voice service. And then on the 14th this week, Executive Order 127, Governor Murphy signs Executive Order extending certain deadlines associated with rulemaking. So those three executive orders have been put into the world by Murphy and... Dictator Murphy. Um, that's a joke because he's he's just doing what needs to get done. But those are his three latest executive orders. And I did want to say he, on his site, uh, the official website of New Jersey, they have made it so that if you look up his executive orders, the most recent ones being put to life are at the top. Previously, I don't know if anyone else has, but me and Mike have been, you know, scanning this for the pod and it used to be the reverse So that's good. It's getting information, being transparent and uh, upfront about what he's doing, which is what you want in a political leader. Next up, we could go into the protester for Murphy. 
NJ.com called them out already, but you know, they are a resource for information in New Jersey. So headline is woman charged for organizing protests of Murphy's coronavirus stay at home order. So on Friday, woman was charged for organizing a protest in Trenton of the stay at home orders instituted last month by Governor Phil Murphy to help slow the spread of the coronavirus in New Jersey. So Kim, Kim Pagan, I think. So it's P-A-G-A-N uh, of Tom's River, of course, was, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Ocean County. Oh. oh, my old home, Ocean County. Um, so Tom's River was charged by the New Jersey State Police with violating the emergency Not, orders. Well, who, who, wait, who was charged? Kim Pagan. Okay, Tom's yeah, River. Yeah. yeah. She was charged with violating emergency orders, according to a release from New Jersey Attorney General, Gibber S. Gerwal. I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but Colin, you know the Attorney General. I do. Uh, his name is tough to pronounce, though, so I'll give you that one. Okay. <laughs> That's and, Colin's uh, sly way of not pronouncing the name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm not a political consultant for nothing, all right? I don't want to dodge a question. Uh, so he charged her, um, according to a release with uh, him and uh, superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, Connell uh, Patrick J. Callahan. Judge me for my pronunciations. It is what it is. So the protesters gathered outside the state house and other locations in Trenton on Friday afternoon as Murphy and state health officials held their daily coronavirus press briefing. So the woman did a, a Facebook live stream of her protest and showed people driving by the state house honking their horns with Why American flags so waving from their windows and others holding signs and flags on the sidewalk in front of the building. That sounds like not social distancing. Yeah, I saw this wasn't from uh, New Jersey, but it was another protest elsewhere. Uh, a woman was holding in a uh, she was wearing a um, American flag outfit just to get an idea of how cringy it is. And she held a uh, sign saying social distancing equals communism. I'm not saying this person who protested in New Jersey had like the same IQ as that, as that other person. But like Wait. social distancing isn't communism. What? <laughs> I was going to ask if potentially they're both from Tom's River. Oh, the God, that'd be too, that'd be too good. Yeah, no. Um, Tom's River's going to protest. protest? Like, like, usually when you protest, you have like a, like she wants to just end the lockdown. Is, is that really all it is? It or seems... is she just calling attention to uh, his alleged tyranny? Because as we'll talk about, uh, uh, Tucker and him got yeah. into a fight. I see it's, a lot of stuff on Twitter now from Tuck, Tucker bots against Murphy. Bots. It seems like they are protesting based on, um, you know, live free or die kind of mentality. Uh, yeah, I, I, choose, I choose live. I choose live. I will give up a little bit of my freedom because guess what? I can still do a lot of things. And that's what I don't understand. It's legitimately temporary. It's temporary. We can get into the conspiracies. We are going to get into the conspiracies later, but it's temporary. You can still go outside. You can still, you know, hopefully a lot of, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people here's have how, been laid off, but here's how you can still know work at home. Here's how you know it's going to be temporary. No country purposefully tanks its own economy in a game to like get more power. Yeah. Okay. Like that's not, that's not something that, that is ever done because when yeah. you destroy an economy, uh, or an economy is destroyed, usually you lose power. So like it, it just takes a couple seconds to realize like this isn't like a long-term good plan. Murphy could like not that he's up for re-election now because we our governor's up's always like a I think it's what a year after Colin after uh, uh, yes we're on yeah. a, the weirdest cycle. It was 2017 was the last election, and 2021 will be his re-election year. Right. Yeah. 
yeah, exactly. So it's, I mean, depending on how he performs and how the state, go, uh, like economy tanks or not, like it could actually hurt his his reelection chances. Though all we will, we could probably talk about that later, but like it all depends on again. Usually during uh, crises, executives uh, uh, popularity goes up, but it's just it's just wild to me that people are uh, kind of misconstruing. And so, I mean, not misconstruing. What I'm trying to say is, while I mean, people are so easily uh, taken advantage of for like right wing purposes to go protest, so that way, like the president can look good. That's that's literally all this is. Yeah. One thing I'll add to this is somebody who has been a part of you know protests for one reason or another and has seen a ton of counter protests. You know, full disclosure. You know, I was a operative when Murphy was running in 2017. Uh, and there was a lot of the uh, the sort of groups like Moms Demand Action, which was formed in 2016, uh, Indivisible, which was formed in 2016 sort of as a reaction to the Trump presidency uh, that would have rallies. And we wanted to organize with those like local volunteer leaders, right? Those were, they were very important constituencies, you know, very big democratic supporters that we wanted to engage with. So when you're dealing with protesters in this way, a lot of times the mentality it does come from a leader, right? It's the same way, one way or another. The strength of a small grassroots organization is based upon their organization, right? And with these small little cells, it's based upon their organizer, right? In this case, a Miss Pagan. So when you're looking at this, the effectiveness and the vitriol sort of comes from the interpretation of what you were talking about, Mike, those like sort of right-wing talking points, right? So the way it kind of works is you see these talking points get trickled down, and then you see one person able to convey them in a convincing way, in a personal way to their friends. It's the same way you get your friends to vote, right? You take, you know, the issues is the way you understand them, and you convey them in a personal way to that person. So the same goes with like how a lot of this stuff starts. Obviously, I wasn't in the room, but from experience, I can say with pretty reasonable authority that it's not necessarily that they're buying every line, hook, line, and sinker, but it's more that people are conveying these points in that it's either A, not real, or like a very common talking point with this. It's like, well, do you know anyone who has it? And if you can't see it, therefore it's not real. It's the same way that, you know, people have dismissed, you know, microbiology, right? Because they can't see it in front of them. You know, for some people, it's a really hard concept to grasp. And it, it's, it is, you know, you, you cannot physically see it without the help of like technology. So that's, that's one big thing. But another thing that I've been hearing, and I think that is actually more concerning is the patriotism angle of a lot of these protests. The idea being that it is patriotic to have them, to have people die, right? In and I believe we talked about this last time. I could I can't quite recall, but it's patriotic to have people die in defense of the economy, right? That if we yeah. continue to keep people out there, that the people we lose are a sacrifice we're willing to make. Obviously, this is coming from affluent white communities where the coronavirus isn't hitting as hard, right? You know, this is again it's old hat. It's just in a different coat. So I think those that is the most concerning one because it allows them to exercise what they believe is a positive attribute, right? Patriotism, love of country, you know, love of their home and their traditions and their values. And they're drawing on that love of that and not understanding that other people are too. And that's where the disconnect happens. It's it's two different interpretations of the same positive things, like hitting each other in the head. And that's why it can be so vitriolic because there's a there's a lack of understanding. And so uh yeah, it's 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 uh it's really unfortunate. Um we're seeing it not just here, we're seeing it in a lot of places and it's um it's really concerning. 
the, the problem is like understanding the the actual crisis that we're in, which they don't actually they simultaneously don't believe that the coronavirus thing is like a real thing. A lot of them believe we'll talk about is it, that it's a democratic hoax, but they also believe that Trump's adequately addressing it, which is like obviously these things are contradictory facts that can't both be true. But like in subservience to like values that that people strongly hold, sometimes facts don't matter. <laughs> it, yeah. it doesn't matter at all uh, it, when you, the value that they're holding is like some superficial understanding of freedom. And, and then there we, you go. And what we talked about, what we continue to talk about is with the presidential election coming up, is your life better? Do you recognize him as a strong leader who is steering the ship? And when you go to the the polling offices, like is Biden, what is Biden? I saw him recently uh, speak about the virus and I am just so scared that it's going to be another four years because he, Biden, no offense to Biden, uh, maybe some offense, but he looks sick. Yeah, I got Really, I don't. His eyes are sunken in now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share in the conversation that we have here two uh, small clips of, of Biden speaking, <laughs> and I would like us to react to them. And we should definitely like play the audio for for our yes. listeners. Um, I would like to take my rights as an ostrich to bury my head in the sand uh, <laughs> yes. until uh, November. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Oh man! I sent a guy yesterday on on a telephone. And he's telling me, he said, I don't know. He said, look, I, 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 I worked at the hospital. And he said, then I, I, got, I got myself in a position where I got the virus. So they quarantined me and, and they put me in the hospital and I made it out. And so I'm out. But they don't want me with my family. I'm on the third floor. I spent 15 minutes on the phone with them saying, he said, I have a three-year-old and a four-year-old. And they come to the door outside and they just knock on the door and say, daddy, daddy, can I see you, daddy? Can I see you, daddy? So we spent time going through it i used to do with my kids when they were little and i couldn't see them and we'd play games i said knock make up a game knock knock on the door and say this is you know it's practical things the guy's scared to death and he's he's worried about his children he's worried about his wife i mean these are practical things and the president talks about this like okay it's going to be okay we're going to open tomorrow we're going to do this i mean it's just i must tell you it drives me crazy I don't know why he doesn't understand. All right. So, um, uh, Mike, just to put it. No, well, hold on a second. Just yeah, in a yeah. spin zone. When you really <laughs> listen to what Biden is saying, again, you can uh, contact me at fuelwins.us. Uh, when you're really listening <laughs> to what Biden is saying, it really is more of an emotional appeal. I mean, really all of the other stuff that is coming out, it, he's really focused on the constituent, right? He's focused on the person and he is focused on making sure that they are okay. The delivery, maybe not 100%, but you know what? That's fine. His heart's in the right place. Welcome to the uh, some some spin zone. Yeah, I, I actually don't <laughs> think you're totally wrong because it's like, it's fascinating to me because I've been trying to understand. I've watched way too many over the past four years <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. And I, I listen to him. I'm like, I don't understand half the time he can't <clears throat> a sentence. I don't under, and he just the things he says don't make any sense. But then like I started the more I watched him, the more I realized he conveyed like a sense of emotion or value. Yes. And then that's what people would take away. And then they would just defend whatever he said. Exactly. And now they'll watch Democrats do the exact same thing with somebody who has arguably less cognition than Trump is is phenomenal. I want to play this one more. This is a shorter clip. Uh, you know, there's a uh, during World War 
Two, uh, you know, where Roosevelt came up with a thing uh, that uh, you know was totally different than a than the, the it's called he called it the you know the World War Two. He had the war the the War Production Board. What was oh. the what was the emotion he was trying to convey? Sanjay, there? Sanjay and Cooper are just sitting there and yeah, no, that's a gaff. I mean, <laughs> and I'm going to actually be perfectly honest. There are plenty of people who are worse on television who are in elected office at the state level. The problem yes. is, is that right now nationally, that none of that matters. Right, the way right. the world we live in, Obama is the model. Right, someone who is polished. He's pristine when he presents himself. But when you look at his policies, it's actually like really moderate, depending on like how many people who are super left wing voted for him because he conveyed that message very well. Like exactly. when you actually look at like what he did, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm a fan of Obama, but I, you know, I can be critical, right? Like he's a, he was a hawk. Like people he's, were like, oh, he he's, he's going to be soft. He's like, no, he's a Chicago city politician. Yeah. Obama you said himself, mind? he's basically a moderate Republican from the eighties. He, he said yeah. that himself. Yeah. It just yeah, so happens. He's really good. I, I, just so saying, he, right. I think Obama's an excellent politician. And I mean, at like, Literally, like he was really okay. good at being an, an an order. He had great public speaking skills. He was uh, uh, sharp and 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 witty. I'll say this though: I, I think Hillary Clinton was a, a pretty decent politician. As goes Obama, uh, but she at least uh, she, she was cognitively there in 2016. She was able to uh, speak and have sentences. <laughs> and, and now we're gonna have uh, Biden, who like as everyone just heard, like he gets worse every week. Every think, time he speaks, it's, it's I think worse. The biggest thing here, and this is something I I didn't quite grasp until one of my my best teachers, um, his uh, his name was Doctor Hirsch, and he actually worked for the Johnson administration. I actually uh, had him uh, for intro to political science in Middlesex County College. This is a slight tangent, but it is relevant. I swear. So when he talked about like political systems. He was like, you know, what do you all of you think of the British monarchy? And we're all like, that's useless. Like, right. Like, what's the point? There's no reason to have a British monarchy. And it's like, well, what we have is essentially an executive that's taking both the social leadership role of the United States of America. Right. You have the president. You have the first lady greeting all people as they come in. They do like events at the White House. Right. They do like these very public things. Right. The social leadership of the country, but also the political leadership. And what monarchies do is it splits that. Right. The queen does a lot of the social things in Britain, while the prime minister does a lot less of that. Right. He or she is not like bound into these social constraints that we put on our president. Right. You know, our president is not only the political leader of our country, but is also the social leader of our country, right? They are a like the most public figure, as close as we can get to a monarch, right? And so when we impose those pressures on them, we are going to trend towards wanting the more social leader. That's how you get Reagan. That's how you get Clinton. That's how you get Bush one, uh, Bush two, like uh, uh, George W., right? Obama, right? People who are very good at being, or actually the first big one was Kennedy, right? Nixon, if you listen to the base on the radio, crushed Kennedy and they watched him on TV. Everyone thought Kennedy won because he looked like John F. Kennedy. So it, it, it <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> he looked good. <laughs> I, looked, I know, he really did. You look back and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> but I, I think it's always interesting to, to keep that in mind. And so that these are the pressures that we're imposing on our leaders. And, you know, when we select 
uh, for those leaders, these are the things that are going to come up. But ultimately, Mike, to your point, I hope, you know, I don't know. Uh, I hope that a lot of the focus of the Biden team, if I was on their team, I think one of the biggest focuses would be simply as much preparation and as little improvisation as possible. Because every time I hear Biden, Biden speak- you can't get him to do that. They have a piece of paper. You can tell he's reading off a piece of paper, that second clip, and like he can't even read it. I also want to call out the the side effects of quarantine on everyone. So I want to float this idea out there that when you are secluded, you are isolated, you're not communicating regularly, you kind of slip up on your your communication skills. Like if you're, you know, an elder person as he is, and your mind's already slipping. I think the problem is difficult for him to not have the routine of sniffing women's hair anymore. <laughs> Or just like that handshaking, like he is a very good group crowd, that that connection he makes with people, that emotional tie. Like when he, back in the last presidential nomination bidding, they did like run, Biden run. And they did that very heartfelt video, you know, a super PAC sponsored that video trying to get him to throw his hat in the ring during the last election. But he can't he can't do these camera individual after he's being isolated interviews where he's expected to do some some improv and connect with people on that level because his mind's not there or because of his elder age maybe he is not being socialized anymore you know it's just but it's sad i think the problem is trump's going to tear him apart in a debate because yes. trump uh has he's a performer right so like at least he knows how to work the media he's good at that uh, it's probably the only thing he's genuinely really good at and biden doesn't have that biden just has that he's a democrat and not trump and i think yeah he's not gonna be able to defend his record not that trump's record's good everyone knows i hate trump's record but it's just uh it doesn't matter so much when you have to convince people to go out and especially during if this pandemic's still going on in november you have to convince people to risk their lives to vote for you to vote for biden I don't know. Maybe we should I'll, move on to. Uh, right, well, I'll actually come back. No, no. I was about to say we'll come back to this on because there's a couple of different things that I've been talking with some colleagues about on how this election, not this 2020 election is going to go, but how elections are going to go, which kind of ties into that. Like a couple okay. of strategies, I think, that will be pertinent in how and I'll, I'll use this sort of as an example, like how you deal with a candidate like that and how you deal with the challenges then of also not being able to do play to your strengths, right? Which is working a room, you know, being person to person. People it was the same thing they said about Hillary, actually. People really liked Hillary in the room, but felt she was cold over camera, right? Like everyone yeah. who met Hillary was like, oh my gosh, like you're way more affable in person. But like on a stage, it's different, right? Playing to camera is different. Playing to the audience is different than it is to a crowd, right? It's a different skill. That's why you have stage actors and screen actors. So we'll get to that in a second, but we should move on. So, okay, cool. Did, did I mention Governor Murphy opening up stuff on June 1st? No, no, yeah, that's that's up next. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right, well, no, spoiler alert. Governor Murphy and a bunch of uh, other governors, he's basically working alongside Andrew Cuomo of New York, the governors of Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Delaware, Massachusetts, to form like a regional partnership to like basically decide when they can reopen their states because it's actually a smart idea. You know, you don't want to just any one of these states were all so close to each other and have commuting so frequently before this that if they if like New Jersey reopens before Pennsylvania or New York, it can just cause reinfections into New Jersey and the other states. So we want to make sure we all open up around the same time when the situation is uh, 
uh, good. So I, I think that's um, pretty good of the governor. He gave like kind of a timeline. He said, quote, I'll be the happiest guy, if not in New Jersey, maybe in America or on the planet, if we're able to start getting back on our feet on June 1st. But we've got to be got to have broken the back of the virus. We've got to have that healthcare infrastructure in place. And we've got to have a plan that works both for us and for the region and for the country. And um, I don't really have much more to comment on that. I just thought it was a lot of people are wondering, like, when's this going to end and stuff. And um it's promising. I, it is because I've been saying, I think, for the past few weeks that, like, I don't see this, like, kind of ending until June or when the peak will probably happen, like, late May or June. So kind of interesting. It seems to be having a similar thing to what I said. Maybe he's listening. Maybe. And it, I think having a date is promising, but it's also something that you can't. What is the saying? You don't count your your chickens before the eggs hatch. You know, right. like I think a lot of people, especially New Jerseyans, we're gonna be we're we're a vacation state. You know what I mean? A lot of regions of New Jersey really heavily rely on tourism. So you have Atlantic City, you have the Jersey Shore, and you have different kind of um, mom and pop farms, and a lot of them have been hard hit. So I, I want to use this podcast as a platform just to do a shout out to the different kind of plant nurseries around New Jersey. They are still open. A lot of them are. There are certain restrictions to some of them, but I do want to say, please, if you are interested in gardening or you want to create a little victory garden or your balcony or your outdoor space, or even in your home, please do because they are still open. And a lot of people are focusing on the the restaurant industry, but also focus on the the farming and gardening and agriculture kind of based industry as well, because they're going to be hit too. Because a lot of people like me, every summer, every spring, I like to plant and I like to garden. I like to plant seeds. And I also like to plant, you know, mature plants also. But it's one of those things during Corona time where you think it's a frivolous purchase and people are dying and you don't want to be the person who is spreading or potentially harming other other people. But if you're supporting local businesses, local restaurants, you might as well be supporting local nurseries as well. Not Home Depot. They're not saying they're going to be fine, but these local community-based gardens and nurseries really need your support as well. That's a really good point, Casey. I actually hadn't really considered that. A lot of, uh, you know, I I live in Bayonne, so I don't really have a venue for doing so. (laughs) But my dad was like, oh, I got all this space in the backyard. I'm going to plant stuff. So I'll I'll tell him about that. So Yeah. And people, there's something, there are scientific studies and research into having plants, not only for air filtering purposes, but being in a home with plants or being surrounded by plants, being in nature positively impacts your mental health. There's something about being around green and flowers and seeing it and having a break. It helps you. And in this kind of time, like make a little victory garden for yourself, even if it's just like a few succulents or some 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 flowers. You could even do some make a little herb garden to encourage your at home cooking. But it does help your community and it does help you mentally uh, stay sane during you know, quarantine. That's a great idea. So moving on, Mike, do you have the video and can you share uh, the Tucker Murphy battle? Yeah. So the full video is about 15 minutes long. I don't want to share the whole thing, but we can, uh, I got a couple clips marked out. So if anyone (laughs) doesn't know, uh, um, Tucker Carlson of Fox News had our governor Bill Murphy on, and he was basically kind of asking him about a few things. The main thing they started butting heads on was, will religious services be a part of like the quarantine 
enforcement? Like, why why is that the case? And Tucker really tried to drill in that Phil Murphy's violating the Bill of Rights. And he got like a couple sound clips out of him, unfortunately, because I, I don't think Murphy, not that he was wrong. I think he did it pretty well, but he slipped up a little bit. But before we get to that part, I want to uh, have this one clip where Tucker talks about reopening because of a uh, study that was done by the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, or the IHME, at the University of Washington. That's right. So you just compared it to the annual influenza. Um, so there is a vaccine typically for that. Um, the new IHME numbers, University of Washington model that I think most of our leaders have been referring to, um, suggests about 60,000 deaths nationwide by August 4th. That would be fewer than what the annual influenza caused a couple of years ago with a vaccine. So does that shake your faith at all in the utility of a vaccine for this disease? Maybe it's not the final answer. Yeah, it doesn't shake my faith in, in either the vaccine, uh, which uh, I'm, uh, all experts think is at least a year, or a year and a half away, it does tell me that if the death tolls are around the numbers that you've just referred to, Tucker, that all of the actions we're taking are making a difference. I, I really believe that with all my heart. The fact that we're staying at home, staying away from each other, is flattening the curve, is leading eventually. Uh, we've got too many lost souls. Believe me, every one of them is a precious life. But the fact that it may be lower well, than sure. we had expected means that it's working. Uh, I just want to comment on this because I heard him reference the report. So I was like, let me take a look at that report. What is it? <laughs> what is it? I already know. I already Tucker, know where this is going. Tucker Carlson is a, is a very, Tucker Carlson's smart. I don't want to say he's dumb. He's very good at propaganda. And when he, when he did, if, if you notice what he said was that the IHME report at the University of Washington said that they revised the national deaths downward to around 60,000. Then he used that revised number to say that, well, look, because it's lower than sometimes what the flu is, shouldn't this be a reason why we reopen it up? So uh, the like you know, end lockdowns and social distancing. However, the report itself took into account that that states like uh, listen, which states they used uh, New York, Massachusetts, Georgia, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Florida, California, and New Jersey were all doing like lockdowns <laughs> and social distancing. And this is a direct quote from. Uh, Dr. Christopher Murray, who's the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and was basically, the, if I believe, the, the, the lead researcher on this report, he said, quote, the trajectory of the pandemic will change, and dramatically for the worse, if people ease up on social distancing or relax with other precautions. Our projections are strengthened by the new downturns in more regions. This is evidence that social distancing is crucial. Our forecasts assume that social distancing remains in place until the end of May. So he just took that. That's how sleazy Tucker can be, taking what is the conclusion of something, ignoring how the conclusion got there, then propping up that as evidence why we should have uh, end the lockdowns and social distancing when that when the conclusion was based on lockdowns and social distancing uh, continuing. I think that's a uh, the the main recipe, you know, the secret sauce of Fox News. I think yeah. that really just, you know. And I think Tucker does it the best in terms of like how he does, he does that with a lot of different things. He's, he's uh, first of all, he sounds smart and articulate, right? So he doesn't, he just doesn't come off as like a complete like nut. Wacko, like, like, yeah. like I'll say like Laura Ingham comes off crazy half the time. Like <laughs> she, she doesn't come off as like this like smooth talking, 
in, in, in like sophisticated intellectual. intellectual yeah yeah uh but god that that infuriated me so so much he then also drills uh the governor on liquor stores let me ask you about the specific measures you just referred to uh now large gatherings are banned um but liquor stores are deemed an essential service why uh, on the basis of what scientific evidence did you decide that couple of things. One is there are liquor stores in our state that actually have a little bit too many backroom gatherings. So we had a little bit of a challenge. We had to remind folks that liquor stores may be opening, but uh, may be open. But to your point, gatherings are not allowed. Uh, we relied on a whole lot of uh, input, uh, reasonable input from recovery coaches, addiction coaches. And they cautioned us if we were to shut, shutter those stores down, we'd have unintended mental health and addiction uh, prices to pay unintended consequences. And so far, that's the route we've taken. Uh, and my guess is we'll continue to take that route. That's actually a very valid point. Yeah, I think they so. They can't too. afford any more people in hospitals. Exactly. It's been proven that if you do that, what will happen is if you think protests are happening now, if you take away people's booze, forget about it. You yeah, want to redo of prohibition? That's why I get. That's why every liquor store is open. I 100% guarantee you. They're like, hey, remember that whole time in 1920? It was real bad, and we don't want to <laughs> fucking do that again. Like, no, like it would be chaos. It would be. Uh, that's, the, that's the thing. Like, do you really think Tucker would would be pro having liquor stores closed? No. He wants to make Murphy look bad. Yeah. He wants to make Murphy look bad to the tables. Murphy had a good answer. He's right. Uh, I think he could have just emphasized a little more. He's like, look, we don't want any more people in the hospital for like coming in because they have like alcohol withdrawal and things like that. Like, so like people don't understand this part of it too, but everyone has to know that Trump is watching Fox news. He's watching every single time a governor is on there and little known fact about Trump, but he doesn't drink reportedly. I don't believe it, but he doesn't drink. Oh yeah, that, and no, I, I I'd believe it. He seems like the the type of person. Didn't he that lose is, a brother to like alcoholism or something? No, it's less that. It's more like it's a holier than thou type thing. Yeah. Right. It's like if he can get anything to hold over somebody, he will. And let's not psychoanalyze the president. Too many people. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for putting in there. No, it's great, but it's a thing of trying to do gotcha journalism with Murphy when he obviously is trying to do the very best he can. And he's not just making these decisions whimsically. Like he has a reason behind it. And a lot of people don't understand about alcoholism. Like we were talking about earlier is that you can go through alcohol withdrawal. You can have seizures, you can die. And not a lot of people know that about alcoholism. When your body relies on a substance as, as basic as alcohol, you can die from going through withdrawal and it's very dangerous and it's going to lead to more hospitalizations. And the impact is that those people who are, you know, potentially post seizure or might have a, a gash in their head be exposed to COVID in a circumstance where they didn't have to go to the hospital normally. I have uh, one more clip if we want to watch it. I think this is one where it's a little rough for Murphy. So um, you made that decision. And as I noted before, 15 Congregants at a synagogue in New Jersey were arrested and charged for being in a synagogue together. Now, the Bill of Rights, as you well know, protects Americans' right enshrines their right to practice their religion as they see fit and to congregate together to assemble peacefully. By what authority did you nullify the Bill of Rights in issuing this order? How do you have the power yeah, to we do were that? 
That's above my pay grade, Tucker. So I wasn't uh, I wasn't thinking of the Bill of Rights when we did this. We went to all. First of all, we looked at the data well, and tell. the science, and it says pe <laughs> people have to stay away from each other. Uh, that's the best thing we could do to break the back of the curve of this virus that leads to lower hospitalizations and ultimately fatalities. And, and I'm, not, I'm not contesting that, though. I think it's I do I I do think there's a debate. This is a, a rolling a rolling conversation because we're learning new things every day, and nothing is settled at this no, point. Understood. But I do want since you are since you are a, an elected official, a leader in the government, an executive, how do you have the authority to order something that so clearly contravenes the Bill of Rights of the United States, the U.S. Constitution. Where do you get the authority to do that? Well, here's, here's the thing. We know we need to stay away from each other, number one. Number two, we do have broad authority within the state. And number three, we would never do that without coordinating, discussing, and, and hashing it out with the leaders, the, the, the variety of the leaders of the faiths in New Jersey. We have we are among, if not the most no, no, diverse I'm sure, state I'm in America, sure that's, so we're I'm, used I'm to sure that, that you, you talk to every rabbi and priest, but but there's a deeper question here. And I, I, I'm just going to ask you one last time, because I think it's important. I'm sure you've thought about this. You can't just, as the governor of a state, tell people who they can talk to when and where, because the Constitution of the United States, upon which all of this is based, prohibits you from doing that. So you clearly decided that you could do it. Did you consult an attorney? about this? Did you, I mean, because there's a, this is a legal question as well as a, sure. as a medical one, isn't it? I, I don't go to the men's room without consulting an attorney, so I, I guarantee you we right. did that. But I'll give you an example that was not related to the synagogue. Uh, I called up Cardinal Tobin, uh, Cardinal Joe Tobin in Newark. There are five or six archdioceses in New Jersey. It was coming up to Easter and Holy Week in particular. And I said, listen, I'm really concerned about drive-through Holy Communion, because we had heard some stories about priests who unwittingly had the virus and unwittingly passed it on to parishioners. And he said, we're not doing that, I promise you, and I'll confirm that with my fellow bishops. That's not d denying someone their right to worship in, in any way, that we have to find a different way to worship. So can I can I talk about this real quick? This is actually yes, really interesting. Do. Technically, no. <laughs> Murphy does not technically, right? If you want to go like straight legally, there's sort of this weird disconnect here, right? Because an executive order states that, you know, under certain conditions, the president has authority to enact powers uh, similar to wartime, right? So that technically supersedes the constitution, but it also doesn't, right? It's this weird, the, the executive order wasn't made with the bill of rights in mind because it was made well after. So when you're looking at state executive orders versus the federal constitution, there is a very, very extensive legal debate on whether or not an executive order in general is constitutionally viable. So Tucker, from a legal, legal standpoint, actually has a great point. The problem is, like anything else, it is a point made with an agenda, right? That he says specifically, now, governor, uh, I just want to, to stress this, like, where do you have the right, right? He's pointing it directly at Murphy. Right. He's pointing it directly at the man like he's not working with the cards he's dealt. Right. He's like, well, I have this tool, the executive order to protect the constituents of New Jersey. I'm going to use it. And I can guarantee you the reason he used it on that uh, synagogue is because they did not follow guidelines set by a higher member of their faith group. I guarantee you a rabbi with more authority said, hey, we're shutting this shit down. Right. This is coming from the governor. We can figure out another way to do this. And they didn't listen.
And I guarantee you that's why they got the hammer dropped on this. Um, so so I, I've heard um, I, I tried to read and find out the governor does have the authority to do that. And it basically seems that it's unclear because it's it, it, it hasn't been challenged in court. But there's a good argument he can be made that he does because he's not actually prohibiting people from practicing their faith. It, it, right. It'd be like, for instance, you can't just use the excuse of religion to do whatever you want. You can't have a church where everyone goes in and then everyone starts stabbing themselves and kill themselves. Like that violates laws. It doesn't matter that your uh, religion supposedly allows says- you to stab yourself in mass. Yeah, exactly. So like the go- the governor can pass or d- decree through executive order that you know because of a national health emergency, people gathering in congregations like this fundamentally violates health protocols that would cause undue harm on everybody, including the the people who are congregating. He's also not banning congregations. Like you can just have a Zoom meeting and things like that. No, like, it's, it's a very good point. He's so, like, not technically banning those congregations. Exactly. But like, I do see the legal argument that, but the thing that what makes Tucker so good is he po- just poses it like a, like, oh, but you know, but what authority? And unfortunately, Unfortunately, Murphy gave him the soundbite of "I wasn't thinking of the uh, Bill of Rights when I when I did this," which is like not good, and that's probably why. No, that's what we're discussing. You know, but, uh, yeah, that's but, like, the only that, reason why we're discussing this. I can tell you that yeah. if he had a if he had a no impact showing on uh, Tucker, they wouldn't have signal boosted his meeting. Uh, what I can say from from you know being familiar with with Murphy and working with the governor on, and it, this is not a personal Colin working with the governor, the closest I ever did to that was <laughs> we played soccer together uh, at the beach uh, after the primary. I did a really good job. Like I, I was very, it was very fun. He's actually a very good soccer player. The thing that would always, that, that was always a, a, a crux is he's not a politician. Right. Like he is not as well versed as some other people at like really understanding these lines. Yeah. And so he got he got, you, you know, this is pretty public. You know, like there were a couple of times where he would make more novice mistakes. But it was also why he was given a little bit more leeway because he's coming from the outside. And so it, it's it's a really it's really interesting looking at his progression as a politician. Right. Because he got he got schooled hard his first year. Right. And how the New Jersey State Senate really functions and how bad Sweeney just made him make every move he wanted to. And so you're seeing him evolve a little bit, but you know, this is just another one of those things, Mike, you said it's unfortunate, right? It's an unfortunate soundbite. I'm actually very interested just like academically in looking at it legally and figuring out like, huh, like where, because there's there's so much um, debate on where executive orders fall, right, in sort of our legal discourse with how it affects our bills of rights. And like, you know, there's been tons of litigation on what exactly is, you know, the, the right to peaceful gathering, right? Well, like, well, where are the limits of that? You know, what is a peaceful gathering? Like those definitions are, you know, defined, but we're pushing those definitions right now. So, yeah. you know, does a gathering, like, is that mean in person? Like, because the internet has screwed everything up, like, well, you can technically just gather on the internet, right? Yeah. So then is the internet a public service then, if it's protected by the Constitution, right? If you say that, then it opens a whole other can of worms, right? Well, I think that's with his executive orders and also the, the legislature. Uh, they're all saying that you're not able to, if you are a telecommunications you know, person, you can't remove the service anymore. For whatever reason, I think there's more details, obviously, behind it, but they're now making it so that it is a public service. It basically not legally making it a public service, yeah. but effectively making it a public service, yeah, right? Because like, you can't shut it down, but it's still private. So we're in this weird yeah. limbo right limbo. now. I hear you. Yeah. But okay. 
Before we move on and close up Murphy's Corner, I did want to bring to everyone's attention that the if you look at New Jersey Legiscan, there have been more bills passed. And just a couple of highlights really quick. The last time we covered it was back in March. And this week on April 14th, there's been a number of bills passed. And a couple of the highlights would be that there's a bill that concerns family leave benefits during epidemic-related emergencies that's been passed. They're passing permits use of virtual or remote instruction to meet minimum 180-day school year requirements under certain circumstances. And another good one, oh, of course, the bill to change the date of the 2020 primary election from June 2nd to July 7th. Interesting that we've been talking about it a lot, that it's been moved, but the bill didn't pass until this week. So that's interesting. And that's really about it. I just want to encourage all our listeners to constantly like a hawk watch what's being passed right now, both executive order wise from Murphy and then also through NJ Legiscan because it is vital to be aware of what is happening now because when everything opens up again, a lot of these things you're going to want to have been reversed by then uh, because you know we shouldn't constantly be living in a wartime and you don't want to have trumped up charges for people who are going back to normal life and having not normal life rules being still in place. Exactly. Well said. So um, before we talk about uh, with Colin about uh, electioning and campaigning, I think it's important that we discuss our favorite 5G conspiracy, uh, sorry, coronavirus conspiracy <laughs> theories. <laughs> I can tell already what yours is. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. So uh, I don't know who, who, wants to, who wants to start with some of the craziest stuff you could find. I, you know, it's funny. I haven't been looking too much on conspiracy theories, but, you know, I follow a lot of very non-political people on Twitter, mostly in like the gaming universe. And a lot of the stuff from from that end is just sort of the the basic like, oh, man, you know, China couldn't get at us militarily. So they engineered this virus. Like if you think it's coming from a bat, you're actually just a simp and don't understand anything. You know, that's about as crazy as it's gotten that um, one's like mainstream. Yeah, that's, that's one's what's crazy because it is super it's a mainstream, mainstream conspiracy theory that China like either lied really seriously about how severe the coronavirus was, which somehow that lie didn't affect Korea, Taiwan, Jap- or Japan, who are and Singapore, who all border uh, China or, or are really close to China, or they purposely did it, like you know, which meant tanking their own economy and uh, tanking the world economy, which they're intimately intertwined with to hurt the United States who had a two month advance notice. It makes, it, it makes no sense. My favorite part about this is that if people think that China want to tank the US economy when they are in the most, like their position is they need the US economy to succeed. So the US can pay them back. Like they have a large financial investment in the US purchasing their shit. So yeah. uh, to, to say it in the frankest of terms. So it, it just doesn't have any basis in reality whatsoever. Can I read you guys one of my favorite ones? Yes, please. I'm excited. So this is, I'm reading this information of a factcheck.org because I've seen, I've saw a whole Reddit conspiracy thread earlier and I can't find it. And that's another thing I wanted to highlight is that these conspiracy theories are spreading, but at the same time they're being censored. So it's one of those things of it just feeds in the conspiracy 
but it's also, you want to, you know, stop the spread of misinformation. But for me, I find a lot of like joy and laughter coming through reading these. So this conspiracy theory is that the, the Gates Foundation, so it's Melinda and Bill, they're actually plotting to use COVID-19 testing and a future vaccine to track people with microchips. <laughs> and the the Gates Foundation has advocated for expanding the testing and has funded a vaccine uh, research project, but neither of them include, you know, obviously implanting microchips. So the full story is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has committed millions of dollars to research treatments and vaccines for COVID-19 as the pandemic continues to spread. And these endeavors are now fueling a conspiracy theory that falsely claims that the, the Bill Gates is trying to use the eventual vaccine to track people. And some articles I was reading about it, they were saying that at the very basis of the theory, the conspiracy theory, there is the fact that if you were to have the vaccine, you would be able to produce, you know, documentation, digital documentation to say, I've had the vaccine or I've had the disease. And that kind of tracking would happen because as you open things up, you need to be able to prove that you've either had the vaccine or you've survived it and have antibodies like naturally built up. And they're saying the conspiracy adds to it saying that it's a microchip that's being implanted in your in your nose as they do the testing. Oh, my but that's, God. You know. It is what it is. Jesus Christ. So I have two that are my favorite and they're kind of linked. So I'll give you the light version of the first one because it evolved into uh, the next one. So the first one is that 5G is a Chinese conspiracy to mind control us or hurt us using radio waves. And you might be wondering, what does that have to do with coronavirus? <laughs> and, what, uh, hey, Mike, what does that have to do with coronavirus? Yeah. And I wondered the same thing because every time I was looking up on these like crazy websites, I was like, why do they keep bringing up 5G? And it eventually brought me to QAnon. I don't know. Are you guys familiar oh, with QAnon? I love QAnon. Q wild. QAnon, for listeners who don't know, QAnon is like a weird conspiracy theorist stuff that's extremely popular among Trump's base. A lot of them, yeah, Pizzagate, uh, they believe that Trump is sending messages to his followers. <laughs> through Q to his followers while he takes on the deep state and uh, is trying to destroy the global pedophile elite, which is a phrase they use all the time. So I was curious, like they have to have something about the coronavirus and they do. So they basically said, again, 5G is a Chinese conspiracy to mind control us. And this evolved into uh, actually the health effects of electromagnetic radiation from 5G are similar to the symptoms of COVID-19. They're not, by the way, that's not, that's not true at all, but that's what they're saying. And uh, they argue that Italy's high infection rate is because the country has the most 5G enabled cities in Western Europe. So this evolved into, I went down a, a huge spiral. It was crazy. So China is collaborating. So there's a, there's a few with that. It's, it's kind of contradictory. But some elements of Q believe that China is collaborating with the deep state and the global pedophile elite to take down Trump. And the virus is actually a live drill to fool the public while the secret patriots who make up Q go around and arrest all the deep state pedophile elites. And uh, I, this was when uh, the post I saw was when Tom Hanks uh, said he had it. So they talk a lot about Tom Hanks. And some of them think that Tom Hanks getting the coronavirus is actually a secret execution order because Tom Hanks is part of the pedophile elite. But others, oh. others think that he actually doesn't have the coronavirus, but claims he does to hide away from the patriots so he doesn't get arrested, arrested for his deep state pedophile activities. Here's my question. Is this the <laughs> plot for Metal Gear Solid 6? Right? That's what it seems like. It's crazy. That's the first thing even... I thought of when I heard 
the Patriots, I was like, yeah. well, this is this is giving me flashbacks here, and they're all about Hideo Kojima games. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, again, if anyone doesn't know, those games have like the most convoluted plots ever on Earth, and they're great. But here's a uh, uh, so this got so serious, I didn't realize this because uh, uh, they were accusing that uh, Oprah and Ellen have already been secretly arrested for being pedo elites. Yeah. Uh, that they had to like publicly deny that this was true, which I didn't know. But Q followers believe that their public denials aren't true and it's actually proof that the patriots are winning against the global pedophile elite in china which is which is part of what conspiracy theorists do like any proof against it is actually proof for it it's wild yeah uh so i don't think i need to explain why that's not none of that's true <laughs> it's kind of like self i don't know man it's making some good points <laughs> yeah I, um, they, I also... they have me at a secret pedophile elite I love the phrase. I, I I purposely use the phrase "global pedophile" every time I could because it's just a hilarious <laughs> phrase. Uh, I also want to talk about the five G conspiracy. They also are they're saying that it's the radiation coming off of the the towers, and that's why you have all these people burning five G towers, especially in the UK and around the world. They're lighting them on fire because of this conspiracy and the radio waves that are used. And this is from TheVerge.com. The radio waves used in 4G, 3G, and also 5G are low frequency and non-ionizing radiation. And this is different than ionizing radiation sources like X-rays, gamma rays, and ultraviolet rays. So it's it's also the, the misinformation of when you hear radiation, you think, oh my God, Radiation, that is bad, but there are also different degrees of radiation and things that have been around this whole time that have not caused a 5G conspiracy. But microwaves. Microwaves. Mic literally your microwaves. <laughs> it works through electromagnetic radiation. Like that's that's how it works. Also, I, I saw this which is sad that uh, Woody Har Harrelson fell for the uh, 5G thing. Uh, not the yes. coronavirus part, but just that it, uh, it had like negative effects. I, I honestly think a lot of it's xenophobia. And I mentioned this last time. So like China's at the forefront of developing 5G, which is an, an exceptionally great, fast, you know, like cellular network. And the fact that like, it's not the United States that's leading this, this development has like in the minds of a lot of Westerners who aren't that bright and who are like prone to like racism and, and these far right conspiracy theories they think like it's got to be nefarious. It can't just be that China developed something that's actually like a product that other countries want to buy <laughs> that actually can stand against it or is better than American products in certain ways. Like they just, it, it, it's, it, that's impossible for their minds to compute. So they go into these elaborate scenarios of 5G uh, hurting us with the radio waves or mind controlling or causing COVID-19. It's it's just sad. Uh, endlessly hilarious though. Endlessly hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it brings me joy in this time. So I guess before we uh, talk, we want to talk about, uh, I guess, quarantine life. I'll, I'll, we can just all share for our listeners, like, what are we doing to stay sane besides read cro uh, coronavirus conspiracy theories? <laughs> and memes. And memes. Memes have kept me uh, going, to be honest. I love memes. Um, I guess I'll go first. Uh, like I said earlier, I started my own victory garden. I have started planting seeds as well as getting uh, grown plants from local nurseries and getting my soil not from Home Depot, but from a, a local nursery. And I have been drafted to go to the grocery store with my husband now. And <laughs> it's it's funny in that normally in the grocery store, there's 
you see couples who have like normal grocery shopping tension. Like I'm a person who, when I go to the grocery store, I usually like to have it be relaxing. Like I like to walk around all the aisles. I have my list, but you know, maybe there's a new product out there. Maybe there's a sale. I'm not looking it up online because I want to experience it in the store. And my husband is a make a list get everything on the list and rapid fire, just go, 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 go. And that's not how I live my life. But Corona time has changed us all. And now I'm in the grocery store with him and I'm the go, go, go person. And he's like, well, just, just stay with me. And like, you can hold the list and then tell me what to get. I'm like, this is a waste of time. Let's go. And I'm running to the other side of the store, picking up things like guys, grocery store games, like doing this as quick as I possibly can. And then there's just people who are not following the the lines because now we have every aisle has a one-way direction and people yeah, don't know. Yeah, micro stores like that too and no yeah, one follows it. And no one follows it. And then also no one knows if you could pass other people in the one-way aisle. And I don't know that to be honest. Yeah. I'm like, like I, I guess not. So I just stand there awkwardly and just wait. I've stood in awkwardly in some aisles. It depends. Like if everyone's doing it, then I'm like, okay, I could pass. But if no one's passing and there's three grocery carts lined up waiting to go through the aisle, I'm like, I guess, I guess I have to wait, but it's, it's changed. And once you get all your stuff and you go back to your, your compound, there's like an ease, but yeah, it's very interesting. Colin, what do you, uh, how's your coronavirus life? (laughs) What do you, what have you been doing to, uh, stay safe? I'm just very busy all the time. There's so much <laughs> things to do. No, um, honestly, uh, Casey, what, something you said resonated with me is that like extra stress with like little things that would normally be, you know, more, I wouldn't say relaxing, but there's a, there's a sort of calmness in your day off or your weekend, right? And you're, you know, going about your chores and you're like putting your things in order and you're done. You're like, ah, everything's in order. Like I've got my groceries. I did a little cleaning. I did a little laundry. Like everything's in, and it's mise en place, right? It's got its place. But with this, you know, it's stressful just to go outside because you're thinking about, you know, the implications of that. So for me, I've tried to limit that as much as possible, though my roommate and I have started a tradition. Every Saturday we order out. So we usually cook every day except for Saturday. So we have like a little meal together on Saturday night, which is tonight. So we're going to have a little uh, takeout today. Yeah, we're trying to support local businesses. Um, I can't really do it as much as I would like because currently there are no campaigns to be a part of, uh, (laughs) really. And we'll get into what that's going to look like later. But in terms of when I go out, really what I focus on now is like just sort of like, this is a crude term, but sort of like armoring up, right? Getting yourself like clothed to ready to go. Like I have from previous campaigns as well as... um, other stuff I have deli gloves like I have a box of like a hundred still about I think I might have another box as well they're they're not medical gloves or deli gloves you have to either tuck them into a shirt or you know use a rubber band to make sure they stay on your hand otherwise they're very loose if you've ever seen like a deli glove that people wear at a counter it's like a loose fitting glove it's not like um, latex like tight directly to your hand like a like PPE gloves would be. Um, so it's, you know, it's not perfect, but it gets the job done. And uh, I had it from before, you know, there was big limitations on purchasing that stuff. And then a lot of times I have my hat on and I tuck my scarf into my hat. So I have a nice little uh, mask covering and I try to use um, one time I had to crudely use tape, but the other time I've been trying crude. to use, yeah, I'm very crude. I used uh, <laughs> a little nasal strip to pin the mask down or sorry, the, um, scarf down to my nose because otherwise you know you're not doing that much with just covering your face like you see those regular masks if they're not 
uh, nosed, pinned down, then it's not really doing what it needs to do. Uh, that yeah. being said, it makes it difficult to breathe, and that's never fun. But no, pretty much the the major things I do is I, I have a liquor store right down the street that I go to, you know, maybe once every two weeks, you know, once just every to, couple to- of days. <laughs> not quite um just pick up uh you know just me then some, just <laughs> well you know you're, you're drinking for two right you two you and uh you and your husband so you know yeah. it's, it's a different thing and then grocery shopping i'm the same way casey i am like i try to spend like 20 minutes max and that's like a three-week shopping yes. trip i just run through i am like about my business i am like point a point b we're not looking at anybody we're not talking to anybody the headphones are in we're listening to you know music we're doing the whole thing i get there i pay and i'm out like i'm just like i'm out of here Done. and are you picking up on the the energy of other people it's such a weird experience in the grocery store i've never had it before but everyone feels tense yeah i've I noticed to, two types to- of people i don't know if you guys notice this uh, I do all the same things too. Like, yeah, you know, the, the whole suit up take forever, and then like just rush around the grocery store. But I've noticed there's two types. There's all of us that do exactly that, and are all like, I need to get the hell out of here. I could get coronavirus any minute. Like all, all that stuff. And there's the people who like you could tell are definitely like, this is bullshit. Like I've done. Like I saw one guy who like had a, a mask on, but like it really was. It was like falling down, and like he didn't care, and he was like touching his face the whole time. And 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 it was just like you could tell like he only wore because he had to wear it to go into the store. Like he didn't yeah. believe that it was like a that big of a deal. I mean, maybe I was projecting my thoughts onto him, but like it, it just seemed to be that way. Uh, otherwise, you take a little more seriously about how to. Yeah. You know, what's really funny is that we're all talking about our experiences during quarantine and it's all recounting stories about the grocery store. That's the most, yeah, it's the most that I get to go out. Uh, staying inside, I've just kind of like, it's not really much to do. You, you know, you, I don't want to just binge Netflix all the time because who knows how quick I'll run out of anything to watch. Yeah. So I try to limit myself on, on doing that. That's and um, I will yeah. say, I do have a little, um, I, I call it like um, my little pen. So my apartment has like a driveway, but there's a gate like after the cars are parked that there's like this little like concrete area where the the downstairs is a sort of a the landlord, our landlord makes tile like he's a tile fitter. And so he has a little like workshop, but that like place is kind of shuttered up and he, he does some work sometimes. But there's like this little tiny like, I don't know, maybe like 25 feet by like 50 feet little concrete square and so I just go out there and just walk. I just walk around a little circle. <laughs> I think of it like I, I say, it's like, oh, I'm going to the yard, you know, going to take my uh, my it like prison. solitary. It is yeah. prison. <laughs> I'm just doing prison workouts in here. I'm doing a bunch of sit-ups and pull-ups. I thank God I have a pull-up bar. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Not as much as I would like. I thought like, oh, now if I have infinite time, I'd get ripped. That is not the case. It is just yeah. like, it's like I, I work out less now that the gym's not there. Yeah. Oh. It's like, because I, I can't do all the stuff that I used to do. And then it's just like, yeah, See, it's boring. I've worked out more, I think now, because I don't have to go to my gym. And so like, everything is my gym now. And I think that's another extremes that people are falling into. They're people who are just saying, you know, screw the gym, screw working out. I don't even want to see your at home workout. Stop sending me stuff. And there are other people who are just like, what can I use as a bench press at home? Cat litter and a gallon of what? Great. Yeah. going to do it. <laughs> I, I think like that was a really great post. Before, before we end this segment, I just want to say like, I think like people need to kind of calm down a little bit, criticizing, getting angry at the people on social media about cr- yes. coronavirus stuff. Like, look, I don't, some people share stuff on social media about their workouts. Some don't, 
you don't have to look at it. Just yeah, you can don't mute. get mad at it. It's easy. You don't just don't get mad at that stuff. Like like literally, they're they're not whether or not someone else is working out in their home or not isn't a reflection on you. Like you can make that decision <laughs> if you want to do that or not. Like people are, are getting really sensitive about this stuff, and people are just it's... trying to like survive coronavirus. Like can you yeah. just, just be nicer to people at this time? Like it's not that hard. And people have nothing else to do, I think, and that's I think feeding into it is that all you can do is like look at Instagram, look at Facebook. That's your social interaction, and if your social interaction with everyone is just reminding you that you're not working out, you're not doing things that other people are doing, it gets you frustrated. Yeah, but then that, that sense of guilt, then just do it. Yeah. Makes you do the thing that's making you, like, I didn't want to do the dishes. Like, it's guilty. Back of my mind, do them. Boom. Ooh. Guilt's gone. How hard is that? <laughs> Same thing. Same thing. Well, I guess uh, let's talk about, um, oh, excellent transition. Let's talk, <laughs> <laughs> Colin. So, you know, you are the founder of Field Wins, and we mentioned it a little bit last time. I don't know if you want to give a, a, little, a real quick introduction of it again, in case uh, for any new listeners. Oh, yeah, sure. So Fieldwinds is pretty basically a, um, a consulting firm, a political consulting firm, specifically focused on field campaigns and, you know, engaging with constituents on whatever is pertinent to an election, uh, specializing in, you know, canvassing, phone banking, vote by mail uh, gathering, which, as you're about to hear, a lot of this is stuff is sort of changing right now. And uh, it's a very interesting time to run campaigns. Yeah, well, I, I think you should get into some of those changes because uh, it, w- what does it look like to run a campaign during a pandemic? Like, how, how does how is it done? So this is uh, I, I sort of have a little bit on two sides of the fence. So um, I was working on a petition campaign, which is if you know the state of New York, you need a certain number of petitions to get on the ballot. So it's called, uh, you know, you by getting on the ballot, you need to gather a certain number of petitions. And that is like a little different than our system uh, in Jersey because it's a lot more stringent in New York. Uh, in New Jersey, it's a lot less um, focused on uh, maybe in some local elections. You need, uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit more oversight. But in general, everyone gets the petitions they need uh, in New Jersey. In New York, it's a lot more archaic. So. When the coronavirus was starting to heat up in March, we were anticipated to have a filing deadline of April the 4th for our petitions. Now, this didn't end up coming to pass, but we didn't know. So like as this virus is building, I am responsible for gathering 5,000 petitions of Democratic voters in a certain district in New York. So that meant we had to be in certain areas talking to people while there was fears about a pandemic and getting their signature. So that already right there is exceptionally difficult. Now, the way we dealt with it was I shifted budgets, right? So if I'm looking at my budget and I have certain amount of stuff to for transportation or things like that, what I did is I shifted a lot of that into supply. So we took out of you know a certain certain areas to purchase enough pens so that we could get one pen for every signature we needed to complete the campaign. That way, if someone signs something, we hand them a pen and they just keep it, right? So it's coming out of a of a sealed box. No one else has touched it. Here's the pen. Take it. Make a signature. Uh, so, so that's like just one basic example of something that we did to make people more comfortable, you know, signing a petition. Now, funny enough, New Yorkers are very resilient, and some New Yorkers didn't give, uh, you know, excuse my language, they didn't give a fuck, and they were like, oh yeah, you know, whatever. This thing isn't going to be too big a deal. Of course, here but we I'm, are. Probably not thinking that now. No. The other thing we did is we limited um, transportation of people by public transit. My office was in a transit hub. So, you know, that was difficult. We ultimately 
did a lot more of uh, less shift times, and we made the shifts very flexible so that people didn't have to come and go to the office at a set time, which were very busy transportation times. So that way, we sort of it lengthened shifts in some ways, but shortened them in others. So it sort of kept the same amount we were spending on labor, but um, allowed for more flexibility and people not having to travel at peak times, right? Uh, and obviously, when we could, uh, you know, we didn't want to buy too many, but we had uh, masks when we could, and we had gloves were the easiest one. Gloves were were pretty, were, were easier to come by. But in terms of now, right? So that was when we didn't know anything. And what they did is they actually shortened the period to end on the 17th of March. So the, and thankfully they also reduced the requirements. They recruited, uh, so the requirements are um, based on the population, which in New York is very high. So they reduced the requirements by a fourth. So you know, we were able to make it in, you know, under deadline, uh, as well as well over goal, which was very good. But now we're sort of dealing with two worlds in politics, those of incumbents and those of challengers. So when you're looking at campaigns for incumbents, what they're doing is what's called a candidate elected divide. So the way that works is that legally, you have to divide your time and report it as what you do as an elected official and what you do as a candidate. Now, a lot of times this can get very confusing, right? Because a lot of stuff you do as an elected official could be construed as a candidate event. Things that you know are kind of non-negotiable or let's say a campaign rally. What you're seeing is people lean much more heavily on the candidate side of allocating their time because all the things they're doing are getting much more exposure as they act to help prevent the spread of coronavirus, right? Whether that is with a virtual town hall, whether that is with Murphy, right? I guess less of an example, more Cuomo, right? The things he's doing is more of an example as he's in the midst of, you know, helping other Democrats get elected across New York, right? And that goes with other local politicians. Now, the problem comes if you're a challenger, because right now the issue isn't so much that elections are being actually stopped, it's, it's more of a soft stop. Because if you're a challenger, basically the only thing you can do right now is criticize someone's response, right? It's easier in places where the response hasn't been very good at all, right? As an example, um, anything else you do is seen as not the appropriate time, right? This isn't the time for campaigning. People already don't like you campaigning when there wasn't a pandemic. So to be seen as campaigning and angling politically at the moment is horrible PR. You're not seeing it as much. Like, look at how much every campaign has toned down in their messaging just since the beginning of March, right? Even the primary, there was way less talk about politics. And this was before even Bernie dropped out. And we're talking on the national level. Can I bring up, um, there's a New York Times article where it's, the title is The Lessons of the elections of 1918, so a nation ravaged by the Spanish flu, figured out how to vote back then, not without incident, but with democracy intact. And it's by journalist uh, Dion, I want to say Searcy is her last name. And it was published on the 21st of March. So the Spanish flu, they were, it was almost exactly how it is now. People were quarantined. People were afraid to get sick and people like large gatherings were banned, all that great stuff. And it infected about a third of the world's population, killing 675,000 people in the United States alone. And 
the 1918 election midterm contest where President Woodrow Wilson's Democratic Party was fighting to keep control of Congress was trying to keep the polling places open. And it was a patchwork of decisions by local officials, because as we've talked about before, it's a state by state, even like I think the Democratic and the Republican parties. It's county by county. And yes. a lot of times it, there are different heads of the BOE board of elections. Sorry. There are different heads of board of elections in each place, and they will give recommendations to the state government on what they can keep open because the state government often doesn't know the realities on the ground. So they rely yes. on local governments to give them that information. So Professor, I'm going to butcher their name, Martirano Miller said that the decision making is in flux. So um, in 1918, the midterm elections were playing out during the, the pandemic and during World War One, um, adding an extra half to decisions that voters would have to make at the polls. Some incumbents were criticized for leaving Washington to campaign when important decisions were being made. So they had to communicate with voters remotely, writing letters and issuing news releases. And one candidate campaigned by car, stopping the vehicle and having an aide play a cornet to draw a crowd until public gatherings were banned. And at the polls, there were workers in some places who were masked and voters faced themselves as they queued up. Dr. Watkins, who um, is a public health historian who studied pandemics, she said that there was an ad produced during the time that featured Uncle Sam. Coughs and sneezes spread diseases and are as dangerous as poison gas shells. And in early 1918, the statewide ban on public gatherings was lifted and politicians were allowed to campaign for five days before the polls were opened. This is a time when women didn't have the right to vote, so only men filed in to cast ballots for a Senate seat in New York, and the incumbent Republican senator was able to hold on to that. So as we talked about before, this is kind of good for incumbents because there's low turnout and people don't want change during this time. It's kind of good for you. And um, the turnout across the nation during that time was very low for the midterms, and people who did come vote were fatally ill. So it was really... Really a kind of a disaster. <laughs> that's something I wanted to ask about. Uh, do you think, I guess it really depends on how long this goes on, but uh, um, I guess let's first talk about the, the primary. Do you think coronavirus is going to affect the turnout for the Jersey primary? Absolutely. That, I it's, think not even, really it's not even, it's not even anyway. It's, uh, it's, it's not even a question. Uh, yeah. It will affect the turnout because A, it is now a foregone conclusion based on the candidates still remaining in the race for the Democratic primary specifically. Um, for And this will unfortunately affect down-ballot races, um, yes. as it always does, as it always does. Um, and that down-ballot races already have very low turnout, and which is why one thing that I think is exceptionally important is states that have already been utilizing vote-by-mail to continue to focus on funding those programs at the level that they can. Now, this ties back into the thing I was saying before, Without funding, not that's not going to happen. And we're already funding a lot of things that you know we're spending a ton more on unemployment than we ever thought we would. There are other programs to unify our public health response that we're spending money on. There's not a lot left room in the budget for you know board of elections funding. That is usually one of the last places to get it. Funny enough, so that is a concern. I mean, when you look at what happened in Wisconsin with the rollout of vote by mail and how people were getting their ballots weeks after they registered for one, which is unheard of, honestly, in any uh, place that has vote by mail, I've really actually been shocked with how well it works personally. Now, there has been some talk also about virtual voting. And I can say with you know somebody who's who's worked in elections professionally 
for about now going on six years, um, there it's just the worst possible idea. There's just oh my God, not- I'm so glad you said that because I also think it's like literally one of the worst ideas. And people are like, I should just be able to vote from my smartphone. And I'm like, yo, our electronic voting machines that we have by any standard are extremely vulnerable as it is. And people want to make basically apps to vote that can easily be like either botted, uh, botted changed, uh, a labyrinthine like way of like counting the votes. All that kind of stuff is ridiculous. Like mail-in ballots or paper ballots are like the only way to go. They work everywhere else in the world, much more transparent. Yeah. And, and it's, it just works. Mail-in ballot it, works. It works. It allows for a record, right? A yes. record that is actually physical uh, and they, it can be documented. The problem with a lot of digital stuff is it's very convenient, but it is very hard to track where something started. Like how many arguments have we had about where something originated originally on the internet? Yeah. Or yeah. Look, look at the Iowa caucus. They, the Democrats tried to throw out an app for that. And uh, it screwed up so bad that like a couple of the sheets were completely duplicated, like counties uh, that ha- had taken pictures of what their sheets were and then the inf- then what the information that uh, uh, that was recorded in the in, in the app, like it differed from what they uh, inputted. Like there's the, we don't have to assume that was nefarious, though. I think it probably was slightly nefarious. Like we don't even have to assume that just bad coding could be disastrous for democracy when you just have a simple system of, of you know, record keeping and, and paper trails um, will suffice. So there's another question I wanted to ask. Uh, unless you have more comments on that. Um, no, no, it's pretty straightforward. Um, I think that vote by mail is going to be the biggest change for these upcoming elections. I think that there's going to be, from every campaign you've ever met, a huge push for vote by mail. There's already activist groups pushing for 50 state vote by mail. You know, I think that this is the time to do it. It's something I've been advocating for as a combination of, you know, how to teach and educate people about vote by mail, the usefulness of it, and then how to retain people to continue to use vote by mail. Because ultimately, you know, it's a really good way to vote. It allows for working class people to vote. It's one of the best way the working class people can have their voices heard. Yeah, because you can vote uh, and not have to worry about. I literally have to. to. I work every election day. I've been doing vote by mail for the past. God, I mean, since they opened it in Jersey, I think it was like 2015, 2016, I think, or maybe it was a little earlier. I can't recall. I do want to highlight the the fact that independents cannot participate. And if there is a vote by mail situation for the, the primaries, like how are how are people able to, you know, change their party, you know, affiliation. Affili- party affiliation, you know, because you're supposed you to be able actually, to do it the same day. It's very good that you're you've asked that question you can change your party registration when you sub, you apply for a vote by mail application a vote by mail application also comes with uh, a couple of different registration forms um this process is different state to state there is a different process in new york there is a different process in new jersey there's a different process in pennsylvania and so on some places which i'm sure Uh, Our viewers and you guys are all aware of our open primaries in which anyone can vote for any candidate. And then there are closed primaries. So only those of which who share the same party affiliation can vote in said primary. Now, in New York, it's actually very difficult to change your party affiliation. It's a huge problem. There's been a ton of it. It's 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 fairly well-tread ground that people are trying to change the ways in which this is done. Jersey, it's a bit easier. Um, Yeah, we're like a semi we're like a semi closed or semi open. Yeah, I believe. Uh, you can register same day in person and three weeks v- by mail. 
I, I believe they leave it, a three it, it's, window. It's that, and also you can basically declare your party affiliation if you're independent the day that you're voting, I believe, if you vote in person. Yes, and that then is correct. Uh, on the primary, but also uh, if you have previously been a different party, it, it, there is a time. I forget what it was. I think it's something like 40 days prior or 39 days prior to the uh, primary. You have to switch. It, 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 that's where it's like kind of confusing. I forget. But. I believe that time frame is three weeks. That, but it is bring up a good point. Is that this? information is not as well known. And so that's where I come in, right? Like a lot of what we do with any fields campaign, it doesn't matter if it's coming from me at Fieldwinds, it's that you have to educate people on their options, right? You know, what, how is it easy is it to do a vote by mail application? It's very simple. Well, can I, can you take a ballot in for me? No, absolutely no one, but you can handle a ballot. It's a federal offense. Like, you know, there are like very specific rules that people have to be aware of so that people aren't filling out ballots for family members and can potentially be actual real voter fraud, not a lot of the fake voter fraud that people talk about, you know. (laughs) And also there are plenty of people giving out false information. We saw this in Wisconsin, telling people they've registered to vote, not filling out those voter registrations and disenfranchising people of their rights. Right. And this is a serious problem because it makes my job harder. Right. I have to deal with a lot of distrust that I actually do my job. So it's something that I uh, get a little mad at, you know, just a a tad. I get a little little sensitive about that topic, you know, just a little bit. But I personally, I think that vote by mail is going to be the biggest change. You're going to hear that a lot more in the coming months. In terms of those numbers, you heard it in 2018, right? I believe it was one of the bigger stories nearing election day, about three days out when they were talking about the record numbers of vote by mail. Imagine that number, but exponentially larger. I can almost guarantee it because considering the situation we're in socially, considering the situation that campaigns are in, it is the easiest way to keep a lot of the same structures without like totally rocking the boat, but sticking to the tenants that we've set up in our new era of social distancing. And we're not quite sure when that's going to end, right? So that would be what I would say. Uh, And in terms of organizing, it's just, it's a lot more, unfortunately, less person to person. And the downside of this is that um, there have been a ton of studies shown that a personal conversation has at least, you know, about three to four conversations with somebody who you're even tangentially familiar with is enough to start to get someone to recognize an idea. They might not agree with it, but they'll hear it, right? They will internalize it and understand it as a point. For television, that's about 11 to 12 times. And for social media, that's about 40 to 45 times. So in terms of what now, what we're limited with, 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 you know, my mom is, I love her to death. She's like, well, you need to switch everything virtual. And I'm like, you know, you need to be like talking to people online. It's like, well, yes, you can, you can personal message them, but like without tons of money to put into digital ads, you're just not going to see the same return that you would see with like community organizing. So Facebook groups, as weird as this sounds, is actually a really good place for this. They're enclosed spaces with people who know each other that it can virtually communicate and, you know, organize in that way, right? So your indivisible groups are actually hugely important in this things. Your social friend groups and religious groups and, you know, other sort of social activity groups are going to actually be political hotbeds in the coming time. I can almost guarantee it, not because anybody necessarily cares, but no one has anywhere else to go or to talk. Right. 
So a lot of these places are going to sort of become forums and they're not going to be hugely public like our reddits like our twitters twitters are really only good for uh, super users right uh, that being bots. um well <laughs> bots can help russian accentuate. operatives I, I mean to be perfectly fair i mean when you look at what like aoc does right like she is it's a good example that. of how to signal boost things and trump right? trump trump's Absolutely. good at twitter he's a yep. tw- him and aoc or twitter masters seriously twitter in chief right twitter but that is only really pertinent for people who have a large following already. And so right. to grow that following, you need to, you know, build that base and you do that through community organizing. And so internet community organizing is a very young, it's it's not an exact science the way a lot of regular field operations are. So it's tough. I mean, we're all sort of figuring it out at the same time. I think one of the great examples actually happened on the Murphy campaign. Uh, Phil Murphy did a series of what were called town halls in a lot of towns around the state of New Jersey, and he telecommuted them. So he also had them on Facebook Live, and he could have people call in to give live questions during those town halls. So he would have people in the room. He had a team recording them. I know because I had to carry in a lot of equipment to a lot of these places all across New Jersey, uh, you know, and, you know, take names of the door do all that stuff. And it was really good because we would have, you know, 100, 200 people in the room, but we would have 5,000, 6,000 on Facebook Live, right? And another extra couple hundred, uh, or actually, I think even a little more listening via um, the phone line and could call in, right? And so these are ways that you can boost your message. You see what, you know, um, Senator Sanders did in this regard. So there, there are different ways you can do it. Um, it's just challenging when you do not have a large platform to start with. I think that's going to be the tricky part is building that platform for smaller local campaigns, right? And getting people to notice because the, the normal ways of doing that are out the window and we're going to have to get creative. So um, how do you see... November going and not in terms of like who's going to win and we get to get still too far out to predict anything like that but just like in terms of turnout do you, do you think it's going to be depressed turnout or do you think like are, are more people going to be motivated to vote just because of like within the past year we've had a lot of crazy things that have, that have happened like the the failed impeachment of Donald Trump that could that could motivate his base uh, could also in a sense motivate Democrat voters to go out to kind of like do what impeachment couldn't so uh, uh, and then but, but I mean, I guess it kind of depends on coronavirus. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on, on whether November's turnout is going to be like, what are the challenges to building turnout in November? The thing I have to say about this is uh, something I've said actually since 2018, uh, after it was one of the largest turnout uh, votes on record. 2020, with what has happened now across the world, is one of the most unpredictable pivot points I think we've seen. I struggle to think of a of a pivot point that you could track in time beforehand that is more important than this election. So to say I could accurately tell you whether or not that the you know uh, divisiveness of President Trump will push up turnout or the fact that we have seen a pandemic that is you know matching or getting close to matching the Spanish flu to depress turnout. I have no idea. I, I yeah. sincerely could would not feel comfortable giving any sort of prediction. Um, That's fair enough. However, I guess the the only thing I will say is that what you have seen is a increase in turnout in federal elections, and we only have one really in primary numbers uh, for federal elections to back this up. 2018 and these primary numbers coming out before everything uh, escalated, that they have all been record. 
Right. You 2018 had, was record you turnout. Record, and, you had record turnout for the Democratic primary up until the coronavirus. That's Look, exactly. More people were coming out all over, uh, not just in the uh, um, what are those stupid things called uh, caucuses, but also in the uh, the primaries. The there, there were huge record you're, turnouts up until the coronavirus. That's why you're, you're absolutely correct. And so that is a good sign. However, Wisconsin was historically low turnout, right? Yep. You know, so. But, but that was also a primary where it was way less stakes, right? Like people in general don't care about primaries, like right? the general populace just does not care. They, they don't pay attention to it. The fact like we pay very close attention to it is rare, actually. I know it sounds crazy, but like, trust me, by the numbers, <laughs> that's the case. So that is a good sign. But then, you know, with the, the virus, I would hazard to say that if things are the way they are now in similar methods of lockdown, that you're going to see a record low turnout, right? But we don't know. Like, that's the problem is we have no idea where we will be come November. So, yeah, I think the, the coronavirus situation, assuming it continues into November even slightly, or at least people believe that the risk of getting coronavirus in November outweighs the risk of, uh, or like, like the benefit of voting. If that calculus is still running into people's uh, heads by by November, um, I guess the coronavirus thing just really changes everything in terms of how this election could go out. Like, I think even if it was Bernie Sanders, I thought he had the best chance to beat Donald Trump. But with something like the coronavirus happening, it's it just really makes it more unpredictable. Yeah, it, it makes it exceptionally unpredictable. Um, yeah, it's it is. Um, I can't stress enough how. Um, actually remark it well there's an old proverb i think it's ironically chinese it's uh, pray you do not live in interesting times and unfortunately we live in very interesting times <laughs> well i think we're probably gonna have to leave it there just because we're running out of time yes but i want to say thank you colin for joining us this week because it's always great to hear you speak about these you know headlines and what murphy's doing because of your experience and your background and we're all for getting different perspectives into our podcast and understanding, you know, we are just commenting and it's great to have you who's actually been on the ground and in the the New Jersey political realm and know about Murphy, um, even though we're, I don't want to say we're pro Murphy, but we're pro, you know, people and that's what Murphy seems to be right now. So I'm really happy you were able to join us today. Thank you very much for having me. I, this is, uh, it's actually cathartic, you know, um, to get a chance to sit down and talk about this stuff. And I, I hope that like, you know, anybody who's listening sort of feels the same way, like feel free to let everybody know what you're, you're thinking about what we're talking about and, you know, just continue to stay vigilant, especially at times like this, it's so important to pay attention. So. Thanks, Colin. Uh, where can people go to find your work? Uh, you can check out fieldwinds.us. Uh, that is fieldwinds as in victory. Dot us. Uh, we are currently on hiatus as along with uh, a lot of other consulting groups, but uh, we are gearing up for the second um, anything uh, sort of tapers off. We're going to be hitting the ground running. So, uh, and I can also be reached at Colin at fieldwinds.us. So if you want right. to ask questions okay. or something. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, listeners, uh, I want to thank you for, well, tuning in this week. I want to <laughs> remind you to check out our Instagram, uh, pod, uh, was it Jersey Matters podcast? Jersey Matters podcast. It's, as the kids say, it's lit. 
It's lit. <laughs> and you can check out our Twitter at Jersey underscore matters. Also, be sure to rate us on uh, iTunes. Following uh, on Twitter. How have I not done this already? Yeah. Uh, we're there. Sure we're there. Uh, <laughs> I, I try to post as many dank things in, as possible and always get into fights with NJ101.5. Yeah. But be sure to also rate us if you li- uh, like, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. If you rate us poorly, make sure your comment's funny. Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, It's very important that you rate us on iTunes. We need to be NJ101.5 because we give you the truth and they give you whatever they do. And uh, Not the truth. And with that, uh, I guess I'm signing off. I'm Mike Prino. And I'm Casey McLean. Have a good week. Bye.